Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus, increment 280. And we are continuing, really, in this increment with the message on this past Sunday, which is increment 279. I don't usually <clears throat> do that because I've been working on Hebrews 9 also for Wednesdays and the AD 70 trajectory. But this will be an apocalypse for right now, part 7. And in every one of these, in the written form, you'll have a reminder of the other increments that are in this particular series within a series. It's an interweaving of Second Corinthians with Hebrews with an emphasis on reconciliation. So far, it's been a series of sermons, really, on this crucial section of Second Corinthians 5, 14 to 21, which we'll go to presently. And we thank you, Father, for this privilege. It's always a privilege when we have the opportunity to look into the mirror of your word because therein we see the image of the Lord into which we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. We thank you for this privilege in his name. Amen. So far we have a working translation, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21, which I call an apocalypse for right now. For the love of Christ controls us, having judged this. Since one died in inclusive representation of all, then all died. And he died in inclusive representation of all, so that those who live would no longer live themselves, but he who died in representation of them and was raised, would live in them and they in him. So from now on, we know no one by any natural means of perception. Even if we regarded Christ in this way, we no longer perceive him that way. Consequently, if anyone is in Christ, and everyone is, that's my bracketed commentary, because Christ died for all and all died in him. He or she is part of a new creation. The old things have passed away. Look, all things have become new. This speaks of what we are calling the radical alteration of the human situation. All things have become new. Now everything is from God who reconciled us that meaning the world, to himself through Christ and gave us, that's those of us who have made this judgment, who are now controlled by the love of Christ, who perceive the situation of all people to have permanently changed from enmity to reconciliation. To us, we have the ministry of reconciliation. So it will begin again with verse 18. Now everything is from God who reconciled us, the world to himself, and gave us, those who know we're reconciled, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing to them their transgressions, and has placed in us the message, and that's our emphasis today, the word, literally, the announcement, we could say, of that reconciliation. 
20. Consequently, we are ambassadors. We could even say it this way, an apostolate in behalf of Christ, making his appeal through us. God making his appeal through us. As we say, in essence, we urge you in behalf of Christ, receive and acknowledge your reconciliation with God. For in representation of us, the one who knew no sin was made sin so that we would become the righteousness of God in him. As if describing this very passage, Karl Barth wrote this, it has to do with the true and radical alteration of this situation. This is what is meant by the grace addressed to the world in him, by the new thing which is known by the community in which it has to attest to the world. This new thing is the event which alters the whole human situation and therefore world history. It is his existence, he himself, it is he, the new person. Now, this is where I've gotten my language about the radical alteration of the situation. I call it the radical alteration of the human and the cosmological situation. And so Barth is right on target with this. Of course, he wrote way over a thousand pages on the doctrine of reconciliation in his church dogmatics. Now, I would say, therefore, in follow-up to this, that Jesus is the new man. If we read Ephesians and Colossians, which are really earlier epistles than Romans, we hear Paul say, put on the new man. Put on the new man. And if we compare those two passages with Paul's last epistle in Romans 13, 14, we discover that that new man that we put on is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. While we make no provisions for the flesh to indulge its desires for us, Jesus is the reality of the new man, the new humanity, the new creation, the new covenant community. For of this renewed humanity, it is said in Colossians 3.11, and this is profound, Christ is all and in you all. We can't escape the reality that is Jesus Christ. And when I say we, I mean the whole world, but each of us individually. We cannot escape the reality that is Jesus Christ. When we get to know him, we would never want to. I'm going to say that again. It could be a thesis down the road. We can't escape the reality, capital R, that is Jesus Christ. When we get to know him, we would never want to, that is, escape that reality. The New Covenant community is a witness to life, with a capital L. Its members are witnesses to life and witnesses against death and the one who had power over death, the devil. You shall be my witnesses when the Spirit comes upon you, 
Jesus said. And you're going to notice throughout this message many references to the spirit called pneumatology. And you'll also notice toward the end many references to the word. The word, the spirit and the word. You will be my witnesses when the spirit comes upon you. In Acts 1.8 says Jesus who is the resurrection and the life. So we are witnesses of life and to life. Because he who is the resurrection of the life said, and the life said, you will be witnesses to me. We are qualified witnesses because we who were dead in our transgressions have been made alive together with Jesus Christ. And we know it. Ephesians 2.5. I'll say that again. We are qualified witnesses to life because we who were dead in our transgressions have been made alive together with Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life, John, 1, John 11, 24, and who is eternal life itself, the only real and true eternal life, because he is the true God, 1 John five twenty. And I'm not going to cite all the verses I have for this. They will be in the printed version, which I urge all of the members of Tetelestai Phalanx to be aware of. The written version is the most important and concentrated form of these messages. And I hope that we have hard copies of them when everything else goes away. We've been made alive with him, with his eternal life. We've been saved by grace and through his faithfulness. And we bear witness to his faithfulness, not our faith. His faithfulness, not ours, secured our justification and the justification of all human beings. The life of which we bear witness is a witness against death. The gates of Hades are the gates of death. These gates had to lift their heads and receive the king of glory who came in and spoiled death, robbed death of all its captives, all its victims, all its slaves. The gates of Hades can't stand up to the church, which Jesus is building on the foundation which he himself, the way, the truth, and the life is. I shall say that again. The gates of Hades can't stand up to the church which Jesus is building on the foundation which he himself, the way, the truth, and the life, is. The gates of death can hold up against the advance of the church. The new covenant community with its witness of life. The adversary, the slanderer, the one who had power over death, to use the fear of death to enslave human beings has been destroyed by Jesus. Hebrews 2.14 For Jesus partook of our blood and flesh so that by his blood and through his flesh he would redeem all beings of blood and flesh with eternal redemption. In fact, through his flesh A highway was made into the heavenly holy of holies and to access to God on the part of all humanity. 
The church is not afraid of death. I'm entering into a realm here of pneumatology. That's P-N-E-U-M-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y. Pneumatology, the study, study of the spirit. The church is not afraid of death. Death, along with its ancient and modern purveyors, is afraid of the church with its living testimony of life. For its testimony bearers are not a dead letter, but an epistle of Christ, not written with ink, which fades as time goes by, which fades as the fading glory of the old covenant that's shown under Moses' masked face. But we are a letter, not written with ink, but, and I'm quoting now, by the spirit of the living God. 2 Corinthians 3.3. 3 called the eternal spirit in Hebrews 9.14, by the same spirit through whom Jesus offered himself to God the Father as God's spotless, blemishless lamb, so that by his blood we would be purged from the dead works that are on the very top level of our consciousness, our conscience, and then to serve the living God. The spirit of the living God. 2 Corinthians 3.3 3, compared with Hebrews 3.12 where we learn of the living God and of the warning not to depart from the living God by an evil heart of unbelief. For the Holy Spirit is the spirit of faith and to depart from him is to depart from the faith that he generates and to live in unbelief the worst possible state of the Christian. Also Hebrews 9.14, where how much more shall the blood of Christ purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much more shall the blood of Christ who offered himself without blemish to God through the eternal spirit purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He's called the eternal spirit there. This spirit of God, he's called in 1 Corinthians 2, 10 to 12, by whom we know all the things that have freely been given to us by God. That's why the spirit of God, who shows us these things freely given to us by God, is also called the spirit of grace, because he, by his very essence and being and act, shows us things that have been freely given to us by God. The spirit is also called the Spirit of Jesus in Acts 16.7. One thing the Spirit of Jesus did in Acts was prevent Paul and his team from going to Asia, and he directed them instead westward. We Americans ought to be happy about that. Europeans ought to be happy about that. On to Macedonia and Philippi. So we have the letter to the Philippians because of that. So this spirit of Jesus, as he's called in Acts 16.7, prevented Paul and his team from going to Asia, and that means simply Asia Minor and further east at the time, and directed them westward onto Macedonia instead. This spirit of Jesus Christ, as he's called in Philippians 1.19, the spirit of truth in John 14.16 and 17, sent by the Father at the request of the Son, Again, the spirit of grace in Hebrews 10.29, Zechariah 12.10, who bears witness to the inestimable value 
of the blood of Christ, the blood of the new covenant. This spirit of grace is also called the Lord, the spirit, the hegemonic spirit, the Lord, the spirit, 2 Corinthians 3, 16 to 18, the hegemonic spirit, the governing or authoritative spirit, Psalm 51, 12, who transforms us increment by increment, imperceptible little by imperceptible little, from glory to glory into the image of the Lord as we gaze at him in the clear mirror of the word of God, as we see Jesus with the enlightened eyes of our interior center and in his face, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, light that shines in his face and shines into our hearts, lighting and enlightening our once chaotic and benighted inner world. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Genesis 1, 3. In fact, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul's experience is linked up with Paul's exposition or exegesis of Genesis 1, 3. The spirit is also called the spirit of faith. He is the spirit who creates faith in us. 2 Corinthians 4, 13. He's called the spirit of life in Christ Jesus in Romans 8, 2, and 3. The spirit of sanctification, the Holy Spirit, who sanctified those whom God justifies. He sanctifies those whom God justifies. He raised Jesus from the dead in Romans 1.4. He resides in us as the spirit of Christ and will make alive our decaying members in Romans 8.11 just as a stirred fire enlivens dying embers. He will make us alive with bodily resurrection life. He will make all alive in Christ Jesus in the bodily resurrection. That's the Holy Spirit. Life in the imminent, radical, permanent, eschatological for the infinite better alteration of the anthropological and cosmological condition. That's what he brings us to. Life in a radical alteration of condition. For the radical alteration of the situation that happened in Christ's death now awaits the radical alteration of the human condition even to the point of a bodily change. Our flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And so God will give us a body called the spiritual body. A body in which all will be made alive in Christ Jesus. He is the Holy Spirit that brings us about. The Holy Spirit given to us to be in us forever. And that includes this time in between the two alterations. And in this time in between, he stokes our faith. He causes our hope to overflow. And he pours out the love of God in our hearts. Romans 15.5 and Romans 5.5. 5. The spirit of whom Jesus speaks is God. There's no doubt about it. Barth rightly wrote of him in this way. And I'm quoting Barth again unapologetically and will one more time in this message. 
He says this, the spirit outpoured at Pentecost is the Lord, God himself, just as the Father and just as Jesus Christ is the Lord, God himself. Once more, if we are asked how this statement comes to be made, we can only answer that to make it not special dialectical effort is required. We have only to allow the biblical statements to stand. We have only to accept their validity and take them seriously. According to these statements, the work of the Holy Spirit in Revelation is a work which can be ascribed only to God and which is thus expressly ascribed to God. And I like what he said about just letting the biblical statements stand. In the biblical statements, The Holy Spirit is called the Lord, the Spirit, and the Spirit as the Lord. He is the Lord God. Now, what are we doing in this increment? What are we doing in this part of this increment? Well, among other things, we're doing pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. But we're also doing much more. By God's grace and by the power of God, we are living pneumatology. We're living by the Spirit in the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. We choose life in the midst of a dying culture, which is, by and large, choosing death. We hold forth the word of life, that's logon zoes, the word of life, Philippians 2.15 and 16, in a crooked and perverse generation, among whom, please notice that, not against whom, but among whom we shine as luminaries in space, as lights in the world in Matthew 5.16. For though we were once darkness, now we are light in the Lord, Ephesians 5.8. And so here's another consideration for us today, and I will say it, First, in a, the form of a seed or a kernel. It's all in this one thing I'm saying right now. Christ for the world is our life. Christ for the world. Christ for the world is our life. We're also doing, besides this pneumatology, an expose on 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21. We're calling it an apocalypse for right now, and we're interweaving it with Hebrews. Here's Karl Barth again. What has become of the decisive New Testament saying in 2 Corinthians 5, 19? And that's a good question right there before going on. What has happened to it? When men and women call themselves evangelists, how often do they relate to 2 Corinthians 5.19? What's happened to it? God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's the evangel. So why aren't the evangelists saying it? But I'll go on. Again, Karl Barth. What has become of the decisive New Testament saying in 2 Corinthians 5.19 that it was the world which God reconciled to himself in Jesus Christ. Or of the well-known John 3.16, that 
that it was the world which he loved so much and in such a way that he gave for it his only begotten son. Or the statement of Colossians 1.16, which may also confer with John 1.1 and Hebrews 1.3, that he created the world, di autu kai eis auton, for him, through him, and for him. The classical doctrine seems not to envisage any relationship, or at least any basic and essential relationship, of the institution and community of salvation to this world outside. As though there could be no question of any such relationship in explanation of the description of the community as ecclesia militans, we know that as the church militant, it was often maintained that on earth and in this age the church has to fight against the world. That's the classical view of ecclesiology. That's what he's talking about. I'll go on to continue with Bart. He said, to be sure, it has also to fight against the world. But above all, does it not have to exist for it? The classical doctrine of the church suffers from the same holy egoism as we had occasion to deplore in our critical consideration of the classical doctrine of man's vocation. The fact that the church exists for the world and not for itself does not appear at all, let alone the fact that it does so originally and essentially. Now, what is he saying here? He's saying here, what happened to that, the centerpiece of our evangel, of our good news, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to itself. Have all of a sudden our enemies become flesh and blood? Are we against the world of flesh and blood? Or did Paul say and mean that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, evil spirits in high and heavenly places? And so to have on the full armor from God. It's true we go against the grain of the world. And in that sense, we fight the trends of the world. But more than that, much more than that, the church exists for the world. That's why we're in it, but not of it. We're in it to testify to it of its reconciliation to God. What's happened to that verse? Where is it? Study evangelists, study what they say, study what they teach, and see if that verse is central in their proclamation. See if an already done deal of reconciliation is there, or instead is the very bad news that you must do such and such and this and then a whole laundry list of things to secure God's favor and to become a Christian. Well, the church cannot live for itself. The church has to live in Christ. In fact, the church, the new covenant community, doesn't live itself. It died when Christ died. It does not live from itself, by itself, to itself, for itself. But Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Son of God, who himself exists for the world, lives in it, 
lives in the community, lives in the Christian, lives in the apostolate on the level of our time. And we live in him, by him, through him, to him, with a view to him, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who instead of the joy before him endured the cross, thinking very little of the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of the Father in the great exaltation. We live for him. In fact, Paul put it quite well in Philippians 1.21, for me, living is Christ. The living is Christ. The livingness of life is Christ. And in Colossians 3, 4, he speaks of the reality of Christ, who is our life. Christ, who is our life. You died and your life is hid with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, we will appear with him in glory. Christ, God for us. Christ is God in us, willing and doing, acting and speaking for the benefit of the world. Through us, he says, know the Lord. And we say, in and with him to our fellow citizens, know the Lord. Be reconciled to God, in other words. The day will come, and how we look forward to that day, when no one will say to his fellow citizen, and I'm speaking right now of Hebrews 8.12, which quotes Jeremiah 31.34, the day will come when no one will ever say again, know the Lord, because according to the promise of the new covenant, all will know me, says the Lord. Until then we say, know the Lord. And another way of saying, know the Lord, is to say, be reconciled to God, because you have been reconciled to God. To know God, to know the Lord, is to know the one who reconciled you to himself. Is to know grace, is to know mercy. This knowledge will include, not exclusively, but significantly, that all have been reconciled to God in Christ. By this work of God, all people will know God. They'll know him as the God of peace, as we do. The God who made peace by the blood of the Son of his love. By the blood of the cross of the Son of his love. And they, we, will all know Jesus as our peace with God. Now, what is the new covenant community is a question we're asking over and over again. Well, we're flawed and imperfect people whom God alone is making into honorable vessels by his sanctifying grace as we pursue sanctification to hold forth the word of life to others. Flawed like us, but not yet awake to the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God and not yet enlightened by the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, the God of all grace, whose grace through our Lord Jesus Christ is being poured out 
not only on the house of David, as Zechariah 12.10 says, but on all of humanity. The last verse in the Bible says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be on all. Panton. In the best translations, panton is the last word. In altered translations, amen is the last word. And with you all, rather than all. The best translation, the Lord Jesus Christ, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with all, period, over and out. On the whole world, now reconciled to God in Christ. In the great darkness that has come over our land, the lights are on in our dwellings, in tents in which we live and move and have our being in God, as all have their living and their moving and their very existence in him, even as a so-called pagan poet, really too, wrote, and who were alluded to by Paul on Mars Hill in Athens at a philosophical symposium in Acts 17:28 We all are children of God and we live and we move and we have our existence in and by him We're not holding forth this word of life then to an alien population but to people like us marred by sin scarred by the thousand cuts that the world system inflicts, dinged by ill-informed or impulsive choices, marked by sorrow, sometimes, maybe even oftentimes, perplexed, like Paul was in 2 Corinthians 4.8, conflicted by lusts and longings. We are ourselves afflicted in every way, 2 Corinthians 4.8 and 4.17. But thanks be to God, growing in sanctifying grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, well-equipped to bear witness of a risen Lord whom the God of peace led up from the realm of the dead after securing reconciliation for the whole world. We are witnesses to life, as I said before. Yes, we are witnesses to life. The life that is Jesus, whom we see with the enlightened eyes of our awakened hearts. We see Jesus, the Son of Man, crowned with glory and honor, while at the same time, in this time, in between, we don't yet see all things under his feet all things salvifically submitted to him, all things in the heavens and on earth harmonized and gathered up in him. We don't see that. We anticipate it in the time in between. Jesus is the king of glory who entered the gates of Hades, which were irresistibly opened. He now has the keys of death in Hades. Call it death, or call it Hades, it's one and the same name. And this one and the same enemy of life is the one whose name is not written in the book of life. And he will be thrown into the lake of fire, the second death, the death 
of death. Jesus is the king of glory who entered the open gates, gates that irresistibly had to open for him. He is the Lord of glory in James 2.1. He is crowned with glory, with the glory of the king of kings and with honor, the honor of the great universal archpriest who is over the household of God to which we belong. Hebrews 10.21, Hebrews 3.5 and 6, Ephesians 2.19, 1 Peter 3.15, 1st, make that 1st Peter 4.17, 1st Timothy 3.15. We are also known as the household of faith in Galatians 6.10. Jesus is the vanquisher of death, the remover of the sting of death, the remover of the stinger of the hornet named death. The stinger is sin. For he appeared once and for all at the termini of the ages to put away, to remove sin by the sacrifice of himself. There is another decisive saying of the New Testament along with 2 Corinthians 5.19. It is Hebrews 9.26. Now once at the termini of the ages he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus removed the stinger. Removing sin, Jesus removed the stinger from death. When the stinger is removed, the hornet dies. We mentioned this a little bit Sunday. The stinger entered into the Lord Jesus Christ where death died. Death died when the stinger of death was removed by Christ who removed sin by becoming sin so that the, we, the world, would be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians five nineteen to 21, explosively correlating with Hebrews nine twenty six, presents an insight that is incalculably valuable. The sting of death is sin. Paul wrote that directly in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six. Then he said, shockingly, the strength of sin is the law. For as the apostle wrote, the law slipped into the already tragic human situation in Adam so that the transgressions would increase. World history from that moment on involved an increase of human transgressions. Increase they did, for sure. But where sin proliferated, grace super proliferated all the more. Romans 5.20 For we know the grace of the Lord Jesus, the one man, Jesus Christ, that he being infinitely rich became abjectly poor, that we would be infinitely enriched by his poverty. Jesus became the proliferation of all the sins of mankind himself. He became that proliferation of human sins by becoming sin itself. And he was crucified as a man guilty of them all. 
In fact, he was crucified as the man guilty of them all. He was made the curse. Galatians 3.13, Deuteronomy 21.23. He was made the curse of the sin-hijacked law. In order to totally weaken the strength of sin, even as he removed the stinger from death, which is sin. Jesus became sin so that we would never feel the real sting of death, the unspeakable, unending sting of death, the fatal, eternally fatal sting of death. He became a curse to remove the curse of the law for us. For as the law itself says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And let me say something to you in regards to that. Jesus became everyone. When he died, all died. He became a curse as everyone so that none of us would be cursed. Jesus became a curse to remove the curse from everyone and to ensure that the blessing of Abraham, which is the blessing of justification, would come to all in Romans 5.18. Gentiles and Jews alike. Jesus put away sin, Hebrews 9.26b, and paved a highway with his blood through the torn curtain of his flesh into the holiest place of all so that we and ultimately all of humanity made in his image would inhabit the high and lofty place of the one who inhabits eternity, who even now also inhabits us and even inhabits our praises, we who are the afflicted but hopeful apostolate on the level of our time. Now consider the message that we carry and proclaim in the closing section of this increment. Consider the message that we carry and proclaim. This word of life, Logon Zoes, this word of life, which we hold forth as unblemished children. Yeah, that's what we're called. Only due to our association, however, with the unblemished lamb. The word of life which we hold forth as unblemished children, as Paul put it in Philippians 2, 14 to 16, due solely to our association with the unblemished lamb. In the midst of a warped and perverse generation, a warped and distorted culture, a perverted culture, he said, in the midst of, among them. The word that we carry, the word of life, is the word of reconciliation, which has been entrusted to us as those who have opened the sealed letter from God to every human being. Every human being got the letter. Only Christians have opened it. It says, quite simply and very 
very forthrightly, I've reconciled you to myself in Christ, Jesus, my son. Believe it. And we believe it. And we urge the world, why don't you open your letter? We all got one. This word of life, also known as the word of reconciliation, is also known as the word of the cross in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For it was on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ in Galatians 6.14 that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not charging the world with its transgressions, which the law made multiply. And why not to the world? Why not charge or impute their transgressions? They committed them. Why not impute them to them? Because in effect and in reality, they were charged to the sinless Son of God who became flesh in order to become sin so that we, the world, would be made the righteousness of God by and in him. What am I doing now? <laughs> the work of an evangelist. I could say to many evangelists, as a pastor, I'm doing your work. I'm doing your job. Now you do it. Because in effect and in reality... These sins were imputed and charged and accounted to the Son of God. How else do you say this otherwise almost blasphemously sounding thing? He became sin. The sinless Son of God who became flesh to become sin. And so in reality, those sins not imputed to the world were charged in effect and in reality to the sinless Son of God who became flesh to become sin so that we the world would be made the righteousness of God by and in him. And there's a lot of universalists, they call themselves, and they write books on Christian universalism, and yet they deny this reality. They have a soft view of the atonement. They don't want to talk about anything like punitive Atonement or penal substitution. No, and but the reason they avoid those statements is because they have a too soft view of the atonement. I'm not all about so-called penal substitution, and I. But I do know that in becoming sin, that wasn't a light thing. In becoming a curse for us, that wasn't a light thing. In tasting death to the dregs for every person, that isn't a light thing. And I don't even care about your damned universalism if your universalism doesn't square with this hard view, this real view of the atoning work of Jesus Christ and what he endured on the cross. You might as well just be a universalist Unitarian All right, so much for that. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. 
and in him all will be made alive. Even as the whole world will be made the righteousness of God in him, all will be made alive. The same all who in Adam die. And we're back to 2 Corinthians 5.14 where this whole thing started. We have made this judgment, crino. If one died for all, then all died. We've come to this conclusion. There's no more objections that can stand up to it in our minds or by anyone else. Consequently, the love of Christ now arrests and holds us in its grip as our prime mover and motivator, as envoys of God, whose feet are shod with the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace is the message of reconciliation, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And this word of life, logon zoes, of reconciliation, ton logon tes katalages, this word of reconciliation, ton logon tes katalages, is the same as the logon zoes, the word of life, is the word of the cross, logos tustaru, is the good word of God, kalon rema, theu, kalon theu rema, in Hebrews 6, 5. It's this living and powerful word of God, Hebrews 4, 12, which is the word, the message of his grace, tologotes karites, karitos autu, the word of his grace. In Acts 20, 32, which Paul called the gospel of God's grace in Acts 20, 24. According to Tetelestai Phalanx, affirmation number nine then, number nine, number nine, number nine, we don't receive God's grace in vain. Second Corinthians 6, 1. That means a lot of things. But among those things, it means that we've tasted it. We've tasted the word of his grace. We've tasted. In fact, we've tasted the Lord and found him to be gracious. We've tasted this word of grace and found it to be sweeter than honey to our mouth. In Psalm 119, 103. We've tasted and discovered that the Lord is benevolent indeed. That he's good to all. And we offer a taste to the world. We say to the world, taste and see that the Lord is good. And we say be reconciled to God, which is to say the same thing. Amen.